Yeah, good morning, everyone. Great to be together. Uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 today, verses 1 to 11. We're taking this term to dive deep into this uh, tiny little letter that Paul wrote uh, to a little island in the Mediterranean called Crete. Just a quick question. Anyone ever been to Crete? Okay, today there's going to be quite a bit about the wine of Crete. So anyone ever drunk wine in Crete? Hey, there we go. Um, so... That's just, I wished I could have brought some wine from Crete and give some to everyone. I was told at the 9 a.m. that wouldn't be okay, so. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to read these verses together, and then we're just going to see what God would say to us from his word. So this is Titus chapter 2, from verse 1 to verse 11. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the gift that it is to us, as it comes to us through 2,000 years of history of the church's story growing around the world and lands in our hearts here in Reading in 2023, we receive it uh, with excitement whether it's the first time we're reading these verses, whether it's the thousandth time, Lord, let your voice be here today for each one of us, whatever role we're playing in the family of God, whatever place we're sitting in the household of Jesus, let your voice come to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to show you a picture of a mosaic. This is a mosaic from Crete. It is, the, there you go, it is um, two, two and a half thousand years old, something like that, and um, it's been preserved, and it's from the island of Crete, and it's got lots of, um, this is winter, it's part of a mosaic that shows all the different seasons, you can tell it's winter because she's wrapped up warm, and um, you take lots of different stones of different colors, chip them to make them fit in, and then fit them together to make something beautiful. If you go back one slide, this is a stone, and, um, or a couple of stones, and on its own, it's really bland and really boring, and you think, no one would care about that two and a half thousand years later. It's not really making a contribution on its own. It's pretty boring, but go forward one slide. As part of a big mosaic, it's got a legacy, and it's been preserved, and you can go to Crete today, and you can see it right? And really, part of the message of this morning is that too many of us 
overestimate the influence or the legacy that we might have as an individual, and too many of us underestimate the value and the beauty of actually being part of a bigger picture and being part of God's family. And, and Christianity is not really about a bunch of individuals fulfilling their purpose in God. Christianity is about the family of God, the mosaic of God, bringing together lots of different people, all different shapes and sizes, all different colored squares. You come, you bring you, you do you, but you bring it into a community, and the result is something beautiful. So it's a really simple message. And what, what we're going to see here is, even though this letter's really short, Titus, you know, you can read the whole letter in 15 minutes. Actually, lots and lots of the verses in this letter are focused on our relationships with each other. Much more than focused on doctrine or right thinking. A lot of this letter is focused on right, right relationships, how we interact with each other in the household of God. And what we see is this really, really matters. And so that's what these verses here are about. He's going through and he's picking out different groups in the community and he's saying, if you guys live like this, that will help you bring your contribution into the whole family and the whole family will be richer for it. So the stakes are high. It's not just older men live like this because then you'll be good older men. It's older men, if you live like this, then that will have an impact on the whole community and you'll be bringing your color and your flavor, and everyone will benefit. The whole church needs fathers to be fathers. The whole church needs mothers to be mothers. And the whole church needs young men to be self-controlled, etc. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to go verse by verse and look at these different uh, groups of people that are addressed. And I'm not going to categorize you. I'm definitely not saying who here is older women. That's, like, that's dangerous stuff. You can draw the line wherever you want. You could read the verses and decide if you want to apply them to yourself or not. Um, but Titus 2 and verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Uh, I think it's fair to say John's an older man, and he's got a new battery in his, what is it called? Mobility scooter, and the guy was... I don't know how fast you were going this morning, but we need you. So it should say older men should be self-controlled, John. <laughs> but dignified, sober-minded, drive that thing carefully, please. <laughs> now, remember, these are um, new believers. They've, they've only just, Paul's come with his crew They've preached the gospel. People have got saved. Paul's left, and he's written this letter to Titus, who he left there. These are brand new believers from pagan backgrounds. So these, these older men have come to faith as older men who've lived a lifetime outside of the grace and love of our Lord Jesus and have, have become crusty and embedded in their ungodly ways of living and habits. And yet even at that crunchy, brittle old age, the grace of God is wonderful enough and powerful enough to change them, bring them into the family of God. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to give your life to Jesus. And it's never too late to have him transform your attitudes and perspectives and habits. You didn't miss out because you didn't grow up in a Christian family. If you're here as an older man today who's not yet a believer, God could still do something wonderful with the last few years of your life. And so, 
we see that the grace of God is powerful enough, even if you're old and crusty and entrenched in certain ways of thinking and ways of living, uh, the grace of God can change even you because it's powerful. And um, he mentions here six attributes for older men. The first three in the list were common in the literature of that time. Everyone wanted older men to be dignified and self-controlled. But the, the second three are uniquely Christian. It speaks about being loving and full of faith and steadfast. And so what we see is what Christian righteousness does is it surpasses cultural righteousness. Whatever the culture says is a good person, the gospel adds more to that. And so we see here, and I think one of the most unexpected and wonderful words for older men here is love. You know, we want our older men to be wise, and we want them to be uh, discerning, and, you know, but, but we want our older men to be loving. We want our fathers in the church to make us feel safe, and to love us, and to be, have that little cheeky granddad smile and warmth about them. Hey, John. Um, <laughs> And so, older men, if you are an older man, we want you to be loving, and we want you to be a father in our community, and we want you to bring that wisdom and experience, but also that safety to us as a family. Is that okay? And then it carries on. Older women, definitely not defining that one, trying not to look anyone in the eye. Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good, and so train the younger woman. So um, I've got some pictures of older ladies from Crete, and what you'll find is they're all, if you Google old ladies from Crete, they all come up drinking wine. <laughs> right, there's one, there's another one. <laughs> That's somebody's grandma. And um, the next one is just wine from Crete. There you go. So... Um, now, the, the, the word here for older women is the same as the word for older men, but just the female version. And it's the same as the word that's used in chapter 1 for elders. Okay? So, in other words, it's saying churches need fathers and mothers. Churches need mothers. And um, it says here you need to be reverent, which the word here actually says like priestesses. You need to be priestesses. You think that's... a you know, we're asking everyone to be nuns or something. No. Um, but it's saying we need the spirituality of the mothers in this church as examples, as something that washes through our life. When I, I got saved at 17, I learned to pray from a group of older ladies. This group of older ladies kind of took control of me and invited me to their house group every week. And, used, and they used to just pray. And I learned to pray from these from these mothers in Christ, and it had a massive impact on my life. And we, so we need the, not just the wisdom and the care of older ladies in the church, we need the spirituality, the, the passion for Jesus in our mothers in the church. And then it says, don't be slanderers. Now, the word for slanderers is diabolical or diabolos. It's the word for devil, because devil means slanderer. The devil is someone who keeps telling you stuff about yourself that isn't true and telling you stuff about other people that isn't true. That's what the devil does. He's a whisperer of nasty lies. And it says, uh, old ladies, don't be like that. Don't gossip. You know, if, if we're going to rank sins in the church, sometimes 
we all get a bit shuddery when someone smokes cigarettes, but the Bible doesn't say anything about that. But we seem to be okay about gossip, but the Bible says a lot about that. So let's just be careful on these things. And then it says, don't be slaves to much wine. Crete was known for a lot of drinking. Uh, I think it's because island life can be quite boring. Uh, I grew up on an island just down the road from Crete, Cyprus. Uh, there's also a lot of drinking of wine there. I think in the, in the summer season, lots happens, and lots of ships would come through the harbors and be sailing up the Mediterranean from Crete. Uh, but in the winter, nothing happens, and so everyone's bored, and there's nothing to do on the island. Definitely like in those days, no bowling alleys or cinemas, and so people would just sit around and drink wine. And um, I think there's definitely a danger here in Reading of people sinning because they're bored. Okay? Uh, we're not a little island. We do have bowling alleys and cinemas, but somehow I think people are in danger of staying shut in their houses, particularly in the winter months, and, and ending up in sin through boredom. And so I think there's just a challenge here for us. And so it's very family. Then he says, and so older women need to teach what is good and train the younger women. And so it's very family, older women teaching younger women. And it says this, verse 4, and train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their, old hus- to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so again, it's not saying here, it's not a killjoy thing, it's not, don't, you know, don't live a fun life, but it's saying the community needs you to be switched on uh, in order to serve your brothers and sisters in the family of God. And just a word to our single women, single sisters particularly here, um, you're not mentioned in this passage, and you might feel left out. Uh, culturally, in Crete 2,000 years ago, they would kind of forcefully marry their daughters off, so there wasn't a lot of singleness, which is why Paul's not addressing them. Uh, but for us, singleness in our day and age and in our community is something that we really treasure and value and don't minimize. And so there's a word of honor here, actually, to our single brothers and sisters in Christ as well. The gift of singleness, devoting yourself to the Lord, is a great thing. The Bible's really clear on that. Uh, I've just got back from Beirut. I was in Beirut this week uh, in the Middle East, uh, serving some churches there, visiting some teams. And one of our church planting teams there is uh, one married couple and three single women uh, in their 30s and 40s. They've been there a long time. They've learned good Arabic. They're reaching people in that city for Jesus. They've got resilience and dignity and faithfulness. And the story of mission, actually, around the world has often been, um, you know, single women going and devoting themselves to the cause of Christ around the world. So I just want to put that in there, even though it's not in the passage. Is that okay? Uh, And then it says, older women should teach younger women to love their husbands. Now, in a culture of arranged marriages, and many of us here wouldn't have had arranged marriages, we would have chosen. That We do have people in our church family uh, who've come from different backgrounds that did have arranged marriages. Um, the cultural expectation in an arranged marriage was not that you would love your husband. It's that you would be faithful, that you would submit, that you would be loyal. But love wasn't a cultural expectation. Uh, Love was really about security, a contract between families. That was the cultural reality here. And so again, we're seeing 
the Bible exhorting something that surpasses cultural norms. Actually love one another. Again, it's leaning into something that people wouldn't have expected, something radically new. It says to younger women here, and be submissive to your own husbands. Now, I think just what's important to note there is that it doesn't say all women should be submissive to all men. It doesn't say anything like that. In fact, it, it emphasizes here your own husbands. So this is an in-house dynamic within families that it's talking about. Um, and then it says that the word of God may not be reviled. So it says, why do we need you to live in this way that we're talking about? It's actually so that people outside the church, when they look at us, will see something beautiful about the way that we relate to one another in the family of God. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, who was um, killed for uh, his faith in Jesus just 100 years BC, 108 B, uh, AD, he said this, the reason that you have a body as well as a soul is that you may win the favor of the visible world. The reason that you have a body as well as a soul is that you may win the favor of the visible world. Because the world can't see your soul or your faith in Jesus or your devotion, but it can see your body and how you behave and how you live and how you relate to one another. And so we see here that actually one of the reasons that we stress the way that we relate isn't just so that the pastor's lives will be easier because no one will be arguing with anyone. Scott won't have to step in and break up any fights. My pastoral technique, just so you know, if you ever come to me for help, if people are arguing, is I tend to just lock them in a room together and throw away the key and let them sort it out themselves. But that's why people go to Scott. Um, it's true. <laughs> it's the reason that our relationships matter so much is so that the world sees and goes, there's something special and surpassingly wonderful about this community of people from many different backgrounds. They seem to get on together in a way that people shouldn't... That person should definitely not naturally be friends with that person. And yet they do, because the gospel brings them together. It's beautiful, right? And we keep saying it, but this space here is extraordinary within the town of Reading. You find very few spaces in Reading that are as diverse as a room like this. Because, you know, postcodes are selective, depending on how much money you have. That's the area. So the most people that you live near have a similar status to you, really. Uh, hobbies are selective. Certain groups of people like to do certain things. Jobs are selective because certain education levels find people in different jobs. But this community is not selective. We're here because we love Jesus. And so it's an extraordinary thing to come from many different places in life and be together to worship him. Incre incredible, unique, extraordinary, wonderful. And then he comes to younger men. Younger men only really get one little verse here. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it, right? Younger men, that's all you need. If you can be self-controlled, the rest will follow. I like that it says here, urge. So community, you can find a younger man and you can urge him. And use that as strongly as you like to be self-controlled. And younger men, you need to take it. You need to take it from your fathers and your mothers and from your sisters. Oi, be self-controlled. Sort it out, right? Um, Self-control is not valued in our culture, 
In fact, our culture celebrates the opposite, self-expression, self-discovery, be yourself, express your urges, express your inner desires. Actually, self-control says our culture is destructive, repressive. You're keeping things inside you that should be allowed to find full flower and expression. Um, but we've seen this word, self-control, often in this passage. In 1.8, we were told elders need to be self-controlled. In 2.5, young women need to be self-controlled. Here, young men need to be self-controlled. In 2.12, it says the whole community needs to be self-controlled. So no one's exempt from the grace of self-control. Next week, we're going to learn how the grace of God helps us in this area of self-control. Because it's not something that we force upon ourselves. It's not a repressive thing. We were talking about a, a liberative desire that comes from the grace of God. And we'll see that next week. Where it says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Hallelujah. And to find out what that means. Um, I just want to show you a video. This is from Crete. And um, this is a young man who does not have self-control. It's a priest at a wedding getting carried away. And what you really need to notice is how offended the bride seems to be because he's overshadowing her moment. need to watch it a second time. Um, I was just going to perform that for you, and then I realized that I'd pull a muscle and fall off the stage, like Scott. Um, but anyway, that was just to kind of keep you focused. Verse 7. <laughs> Paul then says to Titus, he says, now Titus, how about you? And remember, Titus is reading this letter out loud to everybody, and he's He's going, you know, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then now you. And Titus is like, oh no, this bit's about me, and everyone's going to hear what I'm told to do. And he says, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, let's just remember where Titus has come from. Titus is from Antioch. It's one of the biggest cities in the Eastern Mediterranean at that time. And it was called by historians the sewer of the empire. It was a dark, dirty, gangster city. Okay? It's, it, it was a, it, a little bit like South London, if you want, unless you're from South London. I don't mean to offend you. But basically, that's where Titus was from. And Titus was a roadman. Okay, so Titus would have been wearing a tracksuit and trainers. In fact, he'd probably be wearing a tech fleece and Jordan 4s. And he's, he's come from South London, and um, he's a tough guy. He's grown up in a tough neighborhood. Now, Titus and Timothy both kind of emerge into leadership at the same time, but they're really different from each other. And this is important, okay? Timothy is a farm boy. He's very polite. He's very gentle. 
In the letters to Timothy that Paul writes, he keeps saying things like, Timothy, don't be too worried. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried about offending anybody. And Timothy's got a bad stomach. He's got some health problems. He loved books. And um, Titus is completely different. Titus is like, come on, where's the trouble? I'm going to sort it out for you. And that's why Paul sent him to Crete, right? Because it's a tough place. If Paul sent Timothy to Crete, they would eat him. And so at the same time, what's happened is Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus, which is a cultured, sophisticated, wealthy church where everybody goes to art galleries. And so Timothy's the perfect fit there. He's sent Titus to Crete, where it's like a dangerous, dark, tough place, because Titus is the perfect fit there. And it's really important just to note that bit of the story You know, in English, we've got a saying, horses for courses, which means some horses are good at running on hard ground, some horses are good at running on soft ground. If you want to win the race, you've got to get the right horse on the right course. You know, the gospel is like that. God knows what background you came from, whether you're like Timothy or whether you're like Titus. God knows your journey and your story, and he's got the perfect place in his mosaic to put you. So Timothy and Titus don't have to envy each other. Titus doesn't have to look at Timothy and go, oh, I wish I was a little bit more gentle and I liked books. And Timothy doesn't have to look at Titus and go, I wish I was a bit tougher. You know, I wish I was a bit more down with the kids. I think they don't have to be jealous. Each one has a space that God has called them to serve in. And the same, friends, is true for you. Okay? And so God knows your story and your background and everyone's invited and everyone's got a role to play, even in this local church. So it takes envy and jealousy and comparison out of it. You know, I wish I could dance like David Mossin Mbale, but you know, we're from different backgrounds. What can I do? So I'll just delight in watching him dance, right? And so the challenge for Titus The background that he's got, the task that he's been given, is to represent the church and the gospel well. He's been told to muzzle false teachers. He's been told to straighten some things out. He's got some some tough work to do in this community, uh, but he needs to leave no space for an opponent to say anything evil about the way that he does it. And so that's what God's asking him to do. And then we carry on, verse 9. Bond servants, so speaking here actually to slaves working in families, in that culture, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So now he's addressing slaves, and we could feel a little frustrated or put on edge by these verses. I do. They're uncomfortable verses. I'll tell you why. Slavery was sadly a part of the ancient world, Crete, being an island in the Mediterranean that uh, shipping came through all the time, was a place where slaves were bought and sold, as well as being part of the community there. The word slave, in case you've ever noticed, it's linked to the word Slav. Um, So when we would say Yugoslav or Slavic peoples, because in the ancient world at that time, things were the other way around than you would imagine. The wealthy people were in North Africa in the Middle East, and they used to go and find themselves blue-eyed, fair-skinned slaves from Europe and come and work in households there, which is different maybe to the way that we think about 
slavery. In fact, there's records of people doing slave raids from North Africa to Cornwall and taking people from fishing villages in Cornwall to go and be slaves in Algeria and places like that, right? So one of the criticisms that our culture has of Paul in the New Testament, for example, is that it does not seem to openly condemn slavery. In verses like this, it says, slaves, you should obey your masters. And that seems really dissonant with what we understand of a loving, liberating God who has value and freedom for all people. So there's a few things to say here. Firstly, sadly, there have been times when the church as an institution has been directly complicit with the narratives of slavery, particularly the transatlantic slave trade of the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, the, the establishment church was part of that. You can find churches like in Ghana or in other places in West Africa where you've got the church building and underneath downstairs is the cells where the slaves were hold for sale. Or people that got rich from their plantations that were run by slaves and then went and put the money into the building churches. And now we look at it and it's unbelievable that the church was complicit. History shapes us, and slavery might be part of your family's story, and we need to be aware of that in a community like this with one another. Paul does, in other places, call out slave traders as particularly guilty and sinful. Paul in Galatians says that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, all are one in Christ Jesus. So he's arguing for a new community. In Philemon, uh, Paul says to Philemon to treat his slave Onesimus as a brother and to embrace him and welcome him as a brother. So he's trying to invert something of the established status quo in that world. And right from Exodus at the beginning of the Bible, we see a God whose passion is to liberate people from slavery and bring them out. And you get these liberative trajectories all the way through. One of the reasons in Revelation that Babylon is condemned and torn down is because it sells human flesh. And so, so these liberative trajectories all the way through the Bible that we must acknowledge. And there's a common theme in Scripture, and this speaks to our verses here, of the slave who was sold into a king's household and actually ends up having an influence there through his godly life. So we see this in the story of Joseph, who's sold down to Egypt in slavery, but actually the way that he lives has a wonderful witness to the king there. We see this in Daniel, who is sold into slavery in Babylon and has a witness to the king and through the king to the whole nation. We see this in Esther, who is a sex slave or a concubine in the court of the Persian king, but ends up through her godliness saving a whole nation. And so in these verses, Paul is radically countercultural because he's addressing slaves directly rather than treating them as subhuman and just talking about them to their masters. So he's treating them as people with conscience and agency. So I'm just going to read from Witherington. It is to be noted that this advice is to be given directly to the slaves, not to the master to tell the slaves. And so the slave is treated as a person with a conscience capable of making moral, indeed Christian decisions and responding accordingly. Even the lowest in society, perhaps indeed especially 
the lowest in society, not only can contribute to the splendor of the Christian ethic, but also can model Christ-likeness. So again, he's saying we've got this mixed community. Everyone's from a different background, different place in life. But if everyone plays their part, then what we will create is something beautiful that displays the glory of God. And the gospel initiates these, this unity between brothers, this liberative tendency, which will eventually bring the end and the outlawing of the slave trade. It just takes a long time. This word adorn, it says uh, that you may adorn the gospel of Christ. Uh, the word in Greek is kosmosin, which is where we get our word cosmetic. Okay, so I just came back from Beirut. I walked through uh, duty-free. Everyone's trying to sell me cosmetics. I'm like, mate, I don't need eyeshadow. Look at me, please. Um, but cosmetics emphasize or draw attention to the beauty that is already there. So if you've got beautiful eyes, then a little eyeliner applied in the right place, so I'm told. Um, <laughs> can draw attention to your already naturally beautiful eyes. So cosmetics enhance the intrinsic beauty that's already there. And so the gospel is beautiful, but Paul's saying these slave-owning masters probably haven't had the chance to see it. And if these slaves can live beautifully within their context, then actually that could witness to the beauty of the gospel that other people could see. And um, Samuel Ngewa, he says this, just as the appropriate use of cosmetics can enhance a woman's beauty, so the exemplary behavior of Christian slaves will draw attention and make the gospel attractive to unbelievers. Our, our world doesn't see the gospel as beautiful. It sees the gospel as outdated, boring, restrictive, oppressive. Your mates at work, at university, your friends... That's what they think about the gospel often. They're not going to say, oh, Christianity is beautiful. But actually, we have the opportunity by the lives that we live to so adorn the gospel of Christ that people are drawn to its naturally intrinsic beauty. We're just like the, the eyeliner, the eyeshadow in the face of Christ. And people will see his beauty through our contribution. And so there's an application for any of us who have tough jobs, difficult bosses, really poor work conditions, zero hours contracts, if you're taken advantage of or overworked or misused. Some of you are in the UK on a work visa and your employer takes advantage of you. Any of us in that situation, what it says here is let's behave with dignity, respect and godliness and that will be an opportunity to add beauty to the gospel of Christ in their lives. Amen? And then the final verse, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we've seen all people, all different kinds of people, all different kinds of background, encounter the grace of God and are brought into this beautiful family that God is presenting to the world to show his wisdom and his love and his compassion and his care and the new society that he's creating in the earth. And so the call of the gospel brings us into a family. On your own, you're just a boring little square stone, right? But brought into the family, you're part of something incredible, a story through the ages that's going to keep going, that's going to keep having an impact in place after place. And we're brought into this incredible story, God's big story. 
if the family does well, we do well because we're part of the family. If we play our part well, the family does well. And this message, finally, is dedicated to any of us who feel like we don't naturally fit in to this community. You look around and you think, I'm never going to be like these guys, or I feel a little bit out of place here, or I feel a bit awkward, or I can't truly be myself. Actually, what this is telling us is you come, you bring yourself, and in the wisdom of God, there's a fitting in to a family. God places the lonely in families. He takes people, joins them together. There's friends for you here. There's brothers and sisters for you here. There's welcome for you here. Don't try and conform. Don't try and be like everybody else. Come and fit into this family. It will be good for you and it will be good for us. Amen. Amen. God bless you.